This is Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review. Uh, we're going to change things up a little bit at Royals Review Radio. Uh, our regular host, Sean Newkirk, will still conduct his regular podcast with our usual roundtable of writers, but uh, I just wanted to have um, some episodes where we have interviews with people in the know around baseball, and today we're lucky enough to have on Chris Cotillo as our guest. Uh, he's a national writer uh, for MLB Daily Dish, part of the SB Nation Network. And he's been breaking stories on some of the trades and transactions uh, in baseball all offseason. So, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, so it's we're kind of at the end of the offseason now. It's spring training, guys are getting back to baseball activities. Uh, you kind of look back on the offseason. Are there are there trends that you noticed, and, and is there anything that kind of surprised you about how teams operated this past winter? Yeah, obviously. I mean, the whole offseason was basically a really kind of polarizing one offensively you had a lot of options out there a lot of guys had to settle for deals that were a lot lower and a lot more a lot less significant than we thought with dried up markets and then on the pitching side of things I think we saw some really you know, big time deals that went down early and and some guys getting less than I thought because there just weren't many options out there but honestly you know Edwin Encarnacion Jose Bautista were the big guys and their markets kind of dried up for whatever reasons and different factors going in there and they Ended up, I think Bautista back to Toronto wasn't surprising, but if you told me at the beginning of the winter the Indians were going to come away with Encarnacion, I would have been pretty shocked by that. So I think those are obviously the two two of the biggest bats that were out there and kind of just show you how the entire offensive market went throughout the winter. Do you get a sense, is that maybe just something unique because this particular market had so many DH types, or do you think that there's like, the creeping analytics of the game, you know, saying these guys maybe aren't as, as valuable as we thought in the past, or is it, is it just a little... Just a weird year. Well, I think their value, their perceived value at the beginning of the winter compared to what they got is is vastly different. I think it's you're looking at, you know, Bautista wanting probably a three-year deal in the $50 million range and, and Encarnacion wanting an $80 million guaranteed. Some estimates were saying 90 and And you, you saw immediately, especially with Encarnacion, when we started out the winter, we had Toronto in on him as well as the Yankees, Red Sox, and Astros. And those were the primary teams that you thought were going to be in there. And then the Yankees go out and they get Matt Holliday. The Red Sox decide to really focus their attention elsewhere, getting Chris Sale and getting Mitch Moreland instead of getting a big right-handed bat. The Blue Jays thought we thought they would go get Kendrick Morales, or they'd go get you know Encarnacion instead. They go get Kendrick Morales and Steve Pierce, and then you have Houston signing Carlos Beltran. So you have all those guys, all those teams, really getting offensive players that were a lot less expensive and, and kind of shorter-term deals than what you'd have to give to Encarnacion or Bautista. Yeah, and the Royals were kind of part of that, too, uh, kind of passing up any opportunity to keep Morales. Uh, and he signed quickly, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that three-year, $39 million deal with Toronto. And, of course, they kind of they kind of weighed out the, the market a little bit and ended up getting Brandon Moss for two years and $12 million. Uh, they also got a couple you know, a couple other bargains like Jason Hamill and Travis Wood. And, of course, the big deal was, was trading away Wade Davis and getting Jorge Soler. Uh, when you kind of look at their moves in, in total, now that we can look back at how they operated, how do you how do you assess their offseason? Do they do they surprise you in the way they they kind of operated, or is this maybe something they had to do based on you know the way they uh, the things unfolded? Well, I mean, when you're looking at obviously the huge storyline is moving forward and all the free agents at the end of the year. They had they had to make some decisions. They made those three key decisions: extending Duffy, obviously, and then trading away Dyson and Davis, and and they were able to do that offseason in a way where. 
the guys they got back for Dyson and Davis, obviously Solaire being the biggest part of that, can make an immediate impact. And then being able to add veterans on free agency, you can also make that immediate impact and not really breaking the bank doing so. I thought the Hamill deal was great. I thought the Wood deal was really well done. And Moss, compared to you know what Morales was to be able to get him for uh, you know a two-year deal instead of going out and spending you know 33 million or whatever Morales got, uh, I think is a really good way of doing it. I think you're seeing these smaller market clubs at the end of the winter trying to get bargains. You look at you know the Rays signed Colby Rasmus and they've added a couple of relievers and they're now potentially going to go sign Matt Wieters. Wilson Ramos was another guy. These teams looking at these bargain deals just because of the way the market unfolds I think is a really good way for these small market teams to stay competitive in the near term. Yeah the Hamill deal I think was what was most surprising to me just because it was such a thin starting pitching market and he was I mean, even at the beginning of the winter, I thought one of the better starting pitching options out there. Uh, I guess, did that surprise you? Or, or should we be concerned that there wasn't maybe more interest in a team giving him a you know a three-year deal at the beginning of the offseason? I think there's probably a little bit of concern there just because of the way, as you said, the, the starting pitching market was nothing. You had Von Nova, who went back to the Pirates, Jeremy Hellickson, who accepted the qualifying offer instead of trying to get a big-time deal, and then Rich Hill, who went back to the Dodgers. So big-time starters changing teams. I think there was only you know, two or three more who got uh, multi-year deals. Charlie Morton to the Astros, one of them guys in that in that tier. Be- reading stuff on Hamill, basically it seems like teams thought that the Cubs declined his option because they were afraid of injury risk, and the Cubs kind of came out publicly right when they did it and decided, said that they were going to decline the option because they gave him the choice, and if he wanted to test free agency after a good season, then he could do so. But I think clubs were a little bit wary of that, and that's kind of why his value fell off a little bit, and I think there is a little bit of a cause for concern there. Well, hopefully the Royals will be the beneficiary of uh, maybe some teams getting scared off for, for the wrong reasons. Uh, I, you know, the move that I think kind of uh, really polarized Royals fans, I think, also the, the, the offseason was uh, the Wade Davis trade. And we saw, you know, Araldus Chapman and, and Andrew Miller getting dealt in the last, last summer for, you know, really enormous hauls, uh, really great packages of prospects. The Royals kind of shot Davis around, but he got hurt just before the deadline, which kind of ended any chance of them trading him. How do you think they made out, ultimately, getting Jorge Soler from the Cubs? I know he's a player that has had a tremendous amount of upside, but there's some red flags there. Is that, did, that seem, I mean, did that seem like a good haul compared to what those other guys got, or maybe should we, should we not make that comparison because it's two different situations? Yeah, I think it's tough to make the comparison because you're looking at a Yankees team that really needed to restock a farm system that – frankly hasn't been good in forever the Royals didn't really need to do that they just had to get younger and get a guy who's under control I think he's under control through for four more years is it and and, you know a a guy who is going to give you a guaranteed major league player I think it's there when you're in that case taking one proven kind of proven major leaguer who's going to slot in immediately over eight prospects who you know could flame out prospects are are good until you know they look great on paper until you know, there's there's going to be obvious flame out out of those eight guys. It, the fact that two would be major league starters would pretty much be a big win for the Yankees, even though they're really high upside. So I think when you're in the Royal situation, you're looking to keep contending by getting creative, getting you know Soler back for Davis and, and Carnes back in the deal for Dyson. Those are those are things that it keeps keeps them relevant in the near term and kind of moves get something back for guys that you're going to lose in free agency with with all the budgetary restrictions and everything we know about coming up this winter. Yeah, and certainly in Kansas City, we know how high uh, the rate is for prospects to fail. You know, when you get them in a package for uh, an elite player, you know, Carlos Beltran, we got him for, you know, we ended up trading him for 
a package of guys including Mark Tien and John Buck, who, you know, that's actually a lot better than a lot of prospects that I'm doing. They play for a couple years, but uh, so I, I, I'm okay with getting Solaire. I think he's a, you know, a guy that not only is major league ready, but also has some upside. So uh, I, I think people just got, they got uh, stars in their eyes when they saw the Miller and Chapman deals and thought, whoa, if those guys get, you know, if those guys can reap those kind of prospects, well, who knows what we can get. But it uh, didn't quite work out the way, but I think Solaire will end up being a pretty good uh, move for the Royals. Uh, you know, I know that we're always kind of loath to do like winners of the off season because you know what really matters is how you know how you play the game. But uh, when you look back at the off season, like is there a, a team or a player you think made out the best uh, out of you know out of the entire winter? Well, I think you know the the problem with going with winners of the off season is that you you'll mark down like teams like the Padres a few years ago where they went and made all those big splashes <laughs> yeah. and they were terrible. And you know, I think a lot of people are going to look at like the Rockies being that splashy non-contender who made some big moves for Desmond and Greg Holland and all those moves that they made. I think the real winners you should look at are, are contenders that are have just filled their needs. Obviously, the Red Sox a little bit weak on rotation depth. Go out and get Chris Sale, which is a huge move. The Cardinals needed a center fielder and got Fowler. Yeah, and the Giants obviously getting, getting a proven back-end bullpen guy in Melanson and not having to break the bank that much comparatively to what the Yankees had to get for Chapman and what, you know, the... Dodgers had to give for Jansen. I think it's it's those teams are really the ones that look like the winners to me. As for players, I think the guys that got the best deals, um, Morales is a great deal considering what guys later in the the market got. Chris Carter getting three million. I know very different players, but comparatively, thirty three to three is a huge gap. And you you have to look at Ian Desmond. What he got was a great deal, and I think Fowler really got got paid as well. So those are really the deals that stick out. Yeah, I, I know you probably read the reports over the uh, weekend from Ken Rosenthal and some other sources that Eric Hosmer is talking with the Royals about a long-term deal. It's been kind of a source of angst here in Kansas City because you know, we have locked up a couple guys like Alex Gordon signing last year and Dan- Danny Duffy signing a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's committing to Kansas City, but Hosmer, Mike Moustakas, Lorenzo Cain, Alcides Escobar, all of them are free agents uh, at the end of the year. Just... If you had to kind of put it out there, what would you say are the chances of the Royals, you know, really retaining any of those guys uh, be right now? Do you see Hosmer inking a deal in the next couple of weeks, or is this something that's going to go to free agency? I think you'd have to be absolutely blown away to to get something done in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, I know there's a whole – that core came up together and won a World Series, and I think there is honestly going to be a sense of togetherness and, and probably a little bit of um, – will to stay together just in the wake of the Ventura tragedy I think that actually could play into it um and but I, at the same time Scott Boris is going to be telling Eric Hosmer that there's not many players of your caliber who hit free agency at 28 years old and, and he'd, he'd be stupid almost not to at least see what's out there unless he was blown away or the situation was just perfect in Kansas City and he kind of said that in his comments to Ken over the weekend saying you know you work your whole career to get to free agency and it's kind of something that not everyone gets to do, and it's a really earned, important thing, and he might as well test all the options, so I agree. Boustakis and Kane, things have been a little bit quieter on both. Um, obviously, I think Hosmer is their number one focus, and D- Duffy seemed to be uh, along with Hosmer, and they got the Duffy deal done. So in terms of Boustakis and Kane, I, I think those things are a little bit on the back burner while they try to hammer it out with Hosmer, and at this point, I think it's it's pretty much just known that this will be Escobar's last year in Kansas City unless things change drastically. They seem comfortable with they, what they have for replacements there. So I wouldn't expect anything to get done with him. So at this point, Hosmer probably the guy they're focusing on the most. But if there is a wide gap there, they could turn to Mustakas or Kane at some point during for, during spring training. Yeah, I think this will be like the first 
real interesting test. You know, these guys talk about sticking together and uh, what a great organization Dayton Moore has built. But at the end of the day, you know, this comes down to money. This is a business. And, uh, you know, he does have Scott Boris as an agent. The Royals have worked well with Boris in the past. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still a little skeptical they can get uh, anything done or that maybe they even even that they should at the deal, at the kind of the prices they're talking about. I mean, Boris, Boris had floated out a, a number of $200 million, which I think was was roundly mocked um, around baseball, at least by a lot of the fans. Uh, you know, Hosmer's an interesting guy because uh, he's kind of got a superstar reputation, but he doesn't have superstar numbers. I mean, he's been all-star game MVP, he's been a World Series hero, but you look at his numbers and he's got numbers like Brandon Belt, probably not even as good as Brandon Belt. Um, how do you think the market will see him? I mean, I think the metrics are kind of down on him, but by the more you know traditional statistics of RBI and gold gloves and he looks like a fantastic player i mean how does how do teams evaluate that i think i think there's just you know when he was floated out yesterday there the thing that came out with ken is that he might seek a 10-year deal which if you look at the age makes sense but he's not at the caliber of a player that albert pujols and prince fielder were a few years ago when they tested free agency even being older i mean obviously not pujols and fielder had a different skill set but one that was more impressive statistically honestly i think there is there is a, a, a definite you know, thought in baseball that Osmer is a little bit overrated, especially with the, with the ask price he's going to want. I think two hundred million dollars is is pretty ridiculous, and you know, especially considering what you've seen guys get in a really depressed market this year, just just for at first base and, and even in the outfield. So I think obviously you can really throw out whatever you want for numbers in spring training. It's not going to really matter that much until you know. Teams have to start making these offers and being willing to pony up whatever they want next off season, and I think at that point things will become a lot more realistic. Well, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about you personally, just because I think your story is kind of interesting. Um, so, you, if anyone doesn't know, you're a college student at University of North Carolina, and 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 you've been reporting for a couple of years, which means you actually got your start in high school. So, I guess talk a little bit about how you got started and at such a young age and. And like, what what would you see your future as in, in journalism? Well, I mean, it, it it all dates back to being really little and being a huge Red Sox fan growing up 30 minutes outside of Fenway. And I think when you grow up in that atmosphere and you're eight years old and you see the curse of the Bambino being broken, and you know, my grandpa who'd been a fan for basically all that time, and my dad had been a fan for his whole life, it just kind of you see kind of what baseball means. And really, I think baseball, and I will always say that I think sports peaked in that. 2004 run for the Red Sox and obviously there's a lot of bias there but you know coming down 0-3 against the Yankees sweeping the Cardinals I think that's the way that had to happen and for me I can't imagine you know unless UNC wins the national championship here in a couple weeks anything being being better in terms of a sports moment so just kind of having that basis of always being a huge baseball fan and then being told through middle school and high school that I was a good writer I decided you know maybe we could pair those things together and it's really hard, obviously, nowadays with the influx of social media to make a name for yourself because everybody has an opinion. Everybody's trying to write their blogs or whatever, and it's really tough to get noticed. So the way in is I tried to create something unique by becoming an insider and starting to reaching out to people around the game, whether it be agents or you know general managers who didn't respond at first but are now starting to, which has been really good, and, and obviously players and just people in the know, scouts, and trying to work my way up and try to be what Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan and those guys are because it's it's a lot it's a lot more than just you know Twitter scoops and and stuff but with the limited time I had as a high school senior and now three years in college and trying to maintain 
a school life and a social life and all that stuff, just kind of breaking in, doing the insider stuff now and hopefully becoming a more well-rounded journalist after graduation. I think, you know, after graduation, I, would, I see myself kind of doing the same job, whether with SB Nation or elsewhere. I'm obviously going to have to consider all the opportunities that are out there. It's, it just, you know, as, as a graduating senior in college will, and, and hopefully, you know, it's, it's been great for me to be here because it's a great journalism school and a place where the stuff I'm learning, whether it be media law or media ethics or any of that stuff, is directly applicable to my everyday life. And I'm, I'm being able to compare the situations I'm learning about in the classroom and then apply that to like a practical basis in, in real life. So just kind of marrying those two things together has been the perfect fit. And I'm really glad that I ended up here at a great journalism school where I can do that. So we'll see in a year and a half, which is a scary, scarily small amount of time where I'll end up. But I, I definitely lo- love the job and, and want to keep doing it and covering baseball forever. That's interesting you talk about social media because I think, like, if you had maybe come up 10 years ago before the age of Twitter, you know, I don't know if maybe we're having this conversation because I, I don't know if, you know, uh, uh, back then our sources of information were traditional news outlets, you know, the Kansas City Star, ESPN.com. Uh, how do you, I mean, how, how do you see journalism and sports journalism, I guess, changing now with social media? I know you say there, there are a lot of people trying to make a name out there, and of course, Every July 31st, we see a spate of fake accounts, fake Ken Rosenthal's. And, of course, right now, you know, we have the controversy in politics about, you know, fake what's fake news and what's real news. How do you see, how do you kind of navigate that as a journalist trying to filter out what's the noise from from the signal, you know? I think it was a fascinating time to go to journalism school, for sure, obviously, with just kind of how things are changing. And then now this this whole political side of things, I, I think... We've gone in and literally, you know, all political leanings aside, we've gone from hearing, oh, journalism's dead, newspapers are dead, to journalism's extremely important and newspapers are going to save the country or whatever people are saying in literally a couple months. And I think that's been a really fascinating thing to watch and kind of go look at through the lens of someone who's in journalism school. But I think, obviously, for me, Twitter and the advent of social media was the whole thing because, you know, 10 years ago, as you said, 15 years ago, you'd have to be at a ballpark every day or have connections or have a family member who worked in a front office or something like that to be able to be you know connected to all these people and now I kind of my start was oh these agents are following me on Twitter these executives are following me on Twitter these players you know I can direct message them and and try to build a relationship that way and and see you know who's in my area that I could potentially meet up with at Fenway stuff like that so it just kind of leveled the playing field where I could do from my living room what people could do from a ballpark and I think you know there's a lot uh, there's a lot of people that have really realize that and that the social media thing is a great equalizer gives everybody a voice and and is really a huge game changer in terms of how every every journalist covers things but especially in baseball i think you know if you uh, talk to ken and and john and jeff passing about this and you know they the twitter thing is just such a necessary piece of their job now it has to be where news goes first and, and if you think about it like there, it shouldn't be like that because no one's getting paid because you put it on Twitter first. It's just so you say that you had the story first. And then by the time you'd write a story up for the site and have it published so that that would be the first place you could find the news, you'd probably be beaten by someone. So I think it's just it's an intense competition, and it's a really a lot of interesting changes are ongoing. No, I think you're right. It has been a good equalizer. And I think it's made the traditional reporters a lot better too because I think – it's been a little more competition for them, and they, I, I've, I've noticed the traditional outlets have become better analysts. They've hired more analysts, people that can break the game down 
better than some like ex-athlete who just spouts out cliches. So I, I think it's made their game a lot better too. So I think it's been really good for the for the industry as a whole. Now now we got to figure out how to get you know get everyone compensated well. So yeah. that's the next step in journalism. But uh, all right, well uh, we'll end on a light note. Uh, you said you're a big uh, college basketball fan. You're a Tar Heels fan. I'm a big KU Jayhawks fan. So let's hear your. Uh, Final four predictions on who's going to be there in March. That's tough. I think this is you know another year where we looked we looked came into the year thinking that the team who shouldn't be mentioned eight miles down the road would be kind of running away with it, kind of like <laughs> Kentucky did a couple years ago. And then they've just basically, other than the last couple of weeks, which they get handed them, they've been playing really well, including against us. They've kind of had every everything fall apart. You know, Grayson's mental breakdowns on a on a daily basis. I I can say that on air because I don't cover college basketball and. <laughs> And you know, just the just the, the injury problems and everything, and, and they seem to actually be putting it together. So I think, I think when we get we have them here in Chapel Hill on March fourth, and that should be a really interesting matchup. But I have to I I have to think, you know, after we we played Virginia Saturday night in a huge game that was sold out here and and won by twenty four, limited them to forty one points. Not that they have the greatest offense in the country, but I think that's. That was a really telling game. We have Louisville here tomorrow, which I'll be I'll be there, and we have the stretch of games where we have Virginia, Louisville, uh, Virginia again, and Duke, all within like a 12-day period, which is pretty insane. So, um, I, I, but I think it, I would go with UNC definitely in there. I'll give you Kansas because you know Roy used to be there, so I have to at least root for them a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know about Gonzaga at this point. I just don't think they've been tested enough. I think they're an upset. I think Louisville's really good. I think the ACC will probably get two teams in there again. It's just it's the strongest conference in America and maybe ever. So I guess we're, we're with what Kansas, UNC, Louisville. I guess I got to put a wild card in there too. I um, I don't want to say Kentucky. Oh, I I, I, I don't want to. I thought say we could at least share a hatred of Kentucky and Duke together. Yeah, I don't know UCLA. Lonzo Ball can take over, so we'll go with them. In the fourth spot. Yeah, there's a, there, it always seems like there's like one wild card in there. So I, yeah. Yeah. Wichita State. I don't, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Anyone that's a big baseball fan should definitely follow you on Twitter at Chris. Is it Chris Cotillo? Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely follow Chris Cotillo. And uh, Chris, uh, best of luck. We'll definitely have to have you on uh, maybe this summer if the Royals are having a a uh, fire sale. We'll have to have you on to <laughs> talk about uh, all the guys or all the prospects are getting back. But uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Our next guest is Cody Tapp. He's an on-air personality at 810 WHB in Kansas City. And uh, last week he was in Arizona, uh, in Surprise, Arizona, reporting on the Royals. Cody, thanks so much for joining us and bringing back some of that Arizona weather. Uh, No problem at all. I got lucky. It was nice before I left for Arizona, then it was nice in Arizona, and now it's nice when I get back. So uh, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, I imagine it's a rude awakening for uh, spring training reporters when they usually get back, but uh, not for you. Seamless transition. So uh, No, I was in Houston a couple weeks. I'm kind of shortening my winter. I'm trying to (laughs) get to spring as soon as possible. Well, let's talk about some of those Royals. Now they're actually doing baseball activities now. Uh, The full squad is reported. Uh, It seems like in past years, at least 10 years ago maybe, uh, when they had spring training, they would have open competitions at every single position, pretty much. But uh, last couple of years, a lot more stability. Uh, doesn't seem to be, you know, I think the roster is pretty much set uh, going into spring training. Still a couple battles. I think second base is probably the big one right now. Um, you know, the, Ned Yost says it's an open competition right now. Chesler Cuthbert, of course, is going to try to give it a go, moving over from third base. Uh, did you see him work out at second base a little bit? And how do you see the, the second base competition playing out? I, I handicap it towards Whit Merrifield, though I worry that 
any kind of struggle out of him being the guy that has the option over Christian Cologne and Chesler Cuthbert. Um, it seems like that would hurt him in this race, so he really does have to kind of perform. But uh, he had pointed out he was on with us last night on the Hot Stove Show with me and Joe Goldberg, and he's like, hey, I had the job at the end of the season last year, so my thought is that I have the job now, and if I perform the way that they want me to perform, then there's nothing I can do to lose that job. Cuthbert, I, I saw him take some grounders at second. I saw him work with Belliard uh, over there with Whit Merrifield and Raul Mondesi, and without seeing it in game action, I don't know that we'll really know. I mean, he's got good hands. So we know that when somebody hits a ground ball his way, he's okay. And he, he turns it – he doesn't turn it as quick as some of the other guys. Mondesi is way quicker than everybody. And then Witt and Cologne have uh, similar defensive capabilities at second, which is you know slightly above average. He isn't quite as quick at the turn yet, but he looked comfortable over there. Uh, the question will be range mm -hmm. and how he reacts to the ball. The switch to the other side of the infield is always kind of an interesting one to me. For a guy that is primarily played on one side, uh, I, they're going to give him a shot. Like, he's going to play some second base. I just don't know how confident I am that he's got the range or the ability there yet, mostly because the other three guys there, one is a spectacularly good second baseman, Raul Mondesi, and the other two guys are pretty good. So for him to look decent at second base is going to be difficult just based on the competition. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I think they kind of each bring something different to the table. Like Cuthbert, I think, brings more pop than the other guys. Cologne has yeah. the ability to draw walks. Whit Merrifield brings more speed and defense, I think. And then Raul Amonese, I think, just has that tremendous upside. So it'll be, I think, the way they go, I think, will kind of speak a little bit to the direction they want to go as far as this year. Uh, kind of along those lines, we did see them this offseason take more of a uh, power approach, at least when you look at the transactions where they got Jorge Soler from the Cubs and signing Brandon Moss, both of those guys capable of 20 to 30 home runs. Uh, how, do you, how do you see that kind of playing out for them? Is that something maybe that was necessary with the way baseball is going? I think it was, yes, for one it is, because you saw the increase in home run totals last year, and baseball's going back to the age of power, uh, whether they, Rob Manfred said he wanted power, and there is power in baseball, it's back, so power does matter, but this goes back to the same, you know, this is the this is Moneyball, uh, the Royals, when they were making their most, when they made it to the World Series, they were making the most with getting bullpen guys that were affordable, spending their money in Latin America, now power was cheap. Power's cheap this offseason. Two years for $12 million from Moss. What they had to give up for Jorge Soler and a closer in Wade Davis, who, by the way, has been an elite-level closer, but has really battled injuries and closers die off quick in Major League Baseball, considering it was just the one player they had to give up. Now, maybe had they traded him like they did Andrew Miller and Raldis Chapman in the middle of the season last year, way some of those guys got done, if he was healthy at that time, it kind of changes it. But I think that what it was was, in the offseason, the thing that was cheap was power. And that was something that was an obvious need for them. Uh, the lineup based on last year, two years ago when they won it, they hit 147 home runs. Uh, that's more in line of the kind of offense. They don't need to be number one in the league in home runs. But to be back towards the middle of the pack, 14, 15, uh, coupled with some of the things they do well, they should still be a good defensive team even if they are a little bit older. The pitching staff looks improved. I think they went for power because it was cheaper. It was cheaper than buying back all the bullpen guys you wanted. It was cheaper than holding on to Wade Davis and – you know, going back after Greg Holland, because you even see the deals he got, or even, I mean, Melanson's deal. It's expensive. Bullpens got expensive. Power got cheaper. And I think the Royals kind of saw an avenue, at least, where they could get more power, and it wasn't as expensive as some of the other parts. Yeah, I was kind of surprised how, how kind of low some of the deals were, especially, you know, later in the offseason. Oh, yeah. For Brandon even Encarnacion for like $60 million. Yeah. You're like, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, Jose Bautista was talking about $100 million. He ends up signing a one-year deal, so... Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It seems like power just isn't valued the way it used to be. 
Now, one of the guys that the Royals, I think, are counting on for power this year is Mike Moustakas, who, uh, you know, had his, his season cut short last year, just as it seemed like he was kind of turning it on uh, with an ACL injury. Did you get a chance to see him kind of move around a little bit? I know you posted a picture of his, the brace he was wearing on his knee. I mean, how, how, I know the Royals are going to kind of take it slow with him, but uh, is he going to be 100%? Yeah, they're going to take it slow in spring training, but he, he looked fine. Uh, he was turning on the ball fine. I saw him move at third base. He looked fine. I saw him run. He looked fine. And, and I actually saw him. He was having a conversation with uh, one of the bench coaches. It might have been, if I remember, it might have been Grafal. And he was talking about standing in for live pitching, which is something they do you know, over this time, where you know, give a chance for Vargas or Stalmont or Kennedy to throw some live pitches to a guy so they can kind of get back into that rhythm. And he was talking about it was Vargas at the plate. And Vargas was having a hard time just kind of holding the command together because it was, you know, it's week one. They're just now getting back into the throwing program. It's the first couple of times they've thrown to a live hitter. And Vargas had thrown some uh, up and in a couple of times. And specifically one that after he kind of dug back in, kind of came right at him at the waist where you kind of have to like drop those hips, hips back and the legs straighten out and you got to lock both those knees. And he was talking to, he was talking to the coach about it and saying, He's like, you know, it kind of scares you at first. He's like, but it's something I've got to do. And he's like, afterward, I felt fine. Like, nothing felt weird about it. But it is one of those things, you know, they always say you got to trust the knee. Right. That was a trust the knee moment. And when he did it, he said, it felt fine. Like, nothing felt weird or off or different about it after I did it. And that was kind of like a reassuring thing to him. I, the way I saw him move, he looked fine. I think he'll, you know, you know, knees, they could come up with swelling or there could be issues throughout. And I think they'll give him some days off specifically so they can continue to get innings for Cuthbert as well. Um, but I, you know, as far as health goes, I'm not worried about the way he looked, at least in the off season. Yeah. I think we'll all be kind of holding our breath the first time he kind of plants at third base and makes a long throw because sure. I mean, I, I think people forget sometimes at least ACL injuries are no joke. I mean, those, that's a, that's a long recovery and, uh, tough to come back from, but, uh, that's, that's very encouraging to hear. Uh, speaking of Moustakas, he's one of the impending free agents the Royals have this year. Eric Hosmer is another one. He kind of made some waves this past weekend when he, told Ken Rosenthal and others that, including Seren Petro at 810, that he was engaged in long-term discussions with the Royals, but he wanted to get a deal signed by opening day. How optimistic are you that a deal gets done? Do you have any idea like what kind of numbers we're looking at? And do you see any other players signing with the Royals uh, long-term? Long-term, I think they're going to wait to negotiate with Moose and Kane. And Moose, Moustakas has said that he doesn't. He'll negotiate during the season. Mm-hmm. But Boris has said that he won't negotiate both those guys at the same time. Okay. So the way that's going to work is Hosmer says he won't negotiate after opening day. I don't think Hosmer gets a deal done before opening day. I still think he gets to free agency. I just, I really think unless the Royals are willing to give him the number he think he can get in free agency, which I don't think they are, um, that he'll wait until the offseason to kind of test. doesn't mean he might not end up back in Kansas City once he sees what the market holds. That's what happened with Alex Gordon. Right. But the second that season hits and Eric Hosmer is no longer negotiating, and Boris isn't negotiating for Hosmer, then he can get to work on Mike Moustakis. Kane is a whole other thing, aging center fielder who now doesn't have a corner outfield position that he could fall to as a backup replacement because Jorge Soler's locked up in right, Alex Gordon's locked up in left, unless you're planning on moving one of those two guys to first base, and Soler wouldn't make much sense there. And Gordon could be a guy that ends up at first eventually, but I don't think you're there yet with him just because defensively he still does a nice job in left. Um, with, with Hosmer, I just, I don't see a way that they get to the number that he feels comfortable because he makes $12.5 million a year now. The most comparable numbers-wise guys for him, a recent extension guy is Brandon Belt, and he makes about $17.5 million per year. 
Um, and you know, that was a six, you know, he's, he was on an extension. So his contract was a little lower in the earlier years. So it's not quite as bad. He's making 17 and a half million, but I don't think if Eric Cosmo is looking at 140 million or wants more than like once that number I'm talking double of what Brandon Bell got. And I just don't know that the Royals, I don't see anything in triple digits that they're willing to go before the season starts. Because once again, if you sign him to an extension now, you're doing that partially based on unrealized talent. I think a lot of us still think, and I do too, I think he has a ceiling. I think there's more ceiling with Eric Hosmer. I think there could be more power numbers. I think there could be a bigger bat. He's just now hitting what people usually consider hitting prime for a player. So there is reason to think that. But if you sign him to an extent before the season, you're still hoping. And what if he's just this? And you give him $17.5 million a year. It's okay if if it's right in that belt range, right? 70, 80, 90 million. But you start going into the 100, 110, 20, 30. I mean, it's, you go anything over triple digits, you're risking not just getting any value out of that contract or getting enough value, but you're risking serious franchise stuff. Because you get that one wrong and it hasn't worked great with Gordon yet, then, I mean, you are really in trouble. Right. Yeah, I think Hosmer will be a really interesting test case just because I think there's such a huge disparity between how he's valued by like the stats guys and how he's valued by maybe more of the traditional scouting yep. approach. Uh, and, you know, it kind of depends on what the market sees. And it really only takes one team to kind of drive up the price. Of and there are a lot of teams. There are a lot of teams that are going to be looking for first baseman. Right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ken Rosenbaum like, mentioned the Phillies and Red Sox. and The Yankees could be in play. Right. And, you know, depending on what the Dodgers do, because they're guys on a one-year deal, there are a lot of big market teams that could be in play. Marlins, too, by the way. The Marlins could be looking for first baseman. He could go back to Miami, which we know he loves. So I mean, there are going to be a lot of teams in play for him. It, the market will be different. The market will be more favorable to him than it would have been if he was a free agent this year, where, you know, we, like we said, we saw Encarnacion go for $60 million or Batista or a lot of other first basemen. The other guys, I think I went through the list last night of who was going to be available as a free agent first baseman next year and Hosmer's. I mean, realistically, you make a pretty good argument he's the best choice. Like, he's going to be the best option at first base for anybody available. And some of those stadiums, you know, gear towards left-handed power. If he puts together another – if he goes up, he ups his home run total from 25 to 30, then he's a 30 home run guy, and they still think they can tap more potential just because they'll teach a different swing or their stadium is more conducive to home runs than someone might talk themselves into uh, a lot of money. And the Royals can wait and decide if they want to go higher. But the only way I see a deal getting done is if they meet – what he thinks his free agent quota would be. And I don't see a way the Royals can meet that right now because I still think his number's high. And his agent is Scott Boris, so, and he's worked. Yeah. You know, you don't, don't underestimate Boris. He's uh, kind of uh, gotten good deals where people thought there wasn't a market out there before. So uh, I, would be, I, would, I would put a lot of uh, – I, I would definitely trust Scott Boris to get the best deal he can. Yes. Uh, you know, this is kind of a transition year in that the Royals do have a lot of these old faces that they've had uh, during their championship runs. But they also have maybe a couple of new younger guys, and they're kind of transitioning to maybe a different kind of Royals team. Out of the guys that maybe Royals fans aren't as familiar with, some of the rookies or guys coming up, do you see anyone that's going to come and maybe make an impact this season? I know the system's a little thin right now, but um, there are seem to be a, a couple of guys that have some upside. I mean, there's definitely some young guys. You know, you mentioned Stamont keeps getting mentioned because he's a guy that throws 100 miles an hour, and that they would at least entertain trying in the bullpen. So. He's a guy that's going to get some attention. Obviously, you're going to hear you're going to hear the name like Kyle Zimmer come up again um, because if he's healthy, he's another arm that people consider. As far as position players go, the problem with the ones that are the most developed for the Royals is that their space is blocked. Mm. If Hunter Dozier puts together another season like he had last season, 
he's an obvious choice to get a call up. And he'll get a call up in September, um, but there isn't room for him on the roster right now. And I don't see them walking away from a guy unless, you know, Paulo Orlando falls off a map. Um, then they could try to go that route. But I still think you'd mentioned earlier, Max, I think you'd pointed out that you thought the roster was pretty well set. And it is like you start looking through and I don't, I'm pretty sure that Whit Merrifield, Chesler Cuthbert, um, and Christian Cologne are all pretty good shot to make the roster because they can use Whit Merrifield as technically if it doesn't matter who starts. So if Whit Merrifield starts, then Christian Cologne is the utility infielder, and they they go through the trouble of you know moving. And Cuthbert ends up being the DH slash utility, and they teach they. And when you know an outfielder needs time, they move Whit Merrifield to left. He still kind of floats around. It doesn't matter. There's room for all three of those guys because Cuthbert is the automatic backup to Mustakas at third, and he he takes games at DH from Brandon Moss. You know, thirty games at third, thirty games at DH from Moss against a tough lefty or a guy that they feel like. Cuthbert's got some good numbers against, and then they just wait for other opportunities if it's injury or such. Some of the younger guys, a lot of it's going to have to be down to the pin. And even then, they're going to have to beat out what is, I don't know, a list of five or six established veterans that are trying to come off a back, uh, you know, a, a bad year or a hurt year like Withrow and some other guys who've been really good bullpen guys. Late in the season, I mean, you could see some of the names that you're familiar with, but barring, yeah, I mean... Barring somebody getting hurt, there really isn't much room other than maybe a couple of young pitchers that kind of make it through. And the system is kind of lighter, but it, it's deeper in the back end. The AAA guys, like Ryan O'Hearn's only a couple of years away. He looks like a logical guy that'll end up back at first to Farrah Cosmer. You know, a couple of years from now, Farrah Cosmer doesn't uh, end up re-signing with the Royals. There are a few guys that during spring are kind of fun to keep an eye on, but I'm not sure that there's a ton of guys that are going to have an impact this season, at least right away. Other than a couple of those guys like Zimmer and Stamont and uh, Junis, you know, guys that kind of project themselves to be uh, starters but could find their way into the bullpen this time or any time this season, you know, once injuries do occur. You mentioned Whit Merrifield earlier, um, and I think Russ and Dodd mentioned earlier that he might be a candidate to lead off this year. Uh, how do you see, who do you see leading off for the Royals on April 3rd? Is it, are we going back to Esky or uh, is, is Alex Gordon going to get another chance to lead off? I, I mean, I think it'll be Escobar. I would like it to be someone else because when I start <laughs> looking at it, that's and that's fine. That's like the battle that I'll never, I'll never win. <laughs> I've tried to win. I've gone through the numbers. It makes sense to put somebody else up there in an era where you know a team in your division is having Carlos Santana lead off, and you know who is not a traditional leadoff hitter but gets on base. And the Royals are still rolling out Asidus Escobar, who at the moment, unless Raul Mondesi is the starting second baseman is their worst hitter. They're giving their worst hitter the most amount of at-bats. And, and, and it's not a small difference. Escobar plays 162 games. If the guy who hits seventh hits is 162 games, you're talking about a difference of 125 plate appearances. I mean, it's a big difference. In my mind, Alex Gordon, even in his bad year last year, offers more power, uh, equal base running. Escobar's not a big base-stealing threat. Alex Gordon's smart on the base pass. He doesn't make mistakes on there. He's fast enough. You're not worried about it. Like that, that's the way I would go. I like Alex Gordon leading off. Then you probably have to do, if you go that route, Ned likes the right, left, right, left. So it's not Moustakis hitting second anymore, but maybe it's Laurent, maybe it's Whit Merrifield. Like you go back to that. Maybe it's whoever's playing second base. It's Whit Merrifield who's the scene setter guy. And he's good for that, right? Hit it to the right side, bump the guy over, do the small things. Then set up the middle of your lineup with. Kane, Hosmer, Moustakis, Perez, or Soler, Perez, Gordon, 
that could be it has the potential if you put the right guy one which i think you know would probably be my choice and alex gordon if you put the right guy one or even i i mean i'd entertain i'd entertain lorenzo kane hitting leadoff then doing Mustakis second then you hit kane third you go back to the lefty with hosmer fourth there are a couple of ways i'd be i'd entertain doing it and i hope that they at least consider but they've gone a long time of the escobar's our leadoff guy the one good thing for us, Max, this year versus others is because of the expiring contracts, because of Eric Osmer and Lorenzo Cain and Mike Moustakis and Alcides Escobar, they don't have those guys under contract. They will not wait, I don't think, like they have in years past. I don't think they're going to go 60 games of Escobar hitting 235 to make a switch. I think it'll take a month. If Escobar's hitting 235 in a month, they will look to change sooner than before because they can't just sit on their hands like they have in years past. They were coming off the World Series last year. They can wait. And years before, they were developing guys. In 2014, they were kind of riding the ship out. They weren't really sure what they were. This year, they know they've put a lot of money. Dayton Morris put everyone's put a lot of money and time into taking another shot at this thing. I don't think they'll wait around if Escobar struggles. And if that's the case, I mean, I'd entertain Kane leading off, Gordon leading off. Kane was a top three MVP candidate a couple of years ago. It's not, it's not that far removed from a guy. Could you imagine having him lead off? Mike Moustakis hits second behind him, a guy who's got 25, 30 home run potential. Then you get your best hitter or most consistent hitter um, average and OPS-wise over the last couple seasons in Eric Hosmer. Then you get to build everything else behind it. You still get to put good power. I mean, we're still talking to guys that are going to be Salvador Perez and Moss and Soler. That lineup could easily be shaped the right way, deep, really deep, one through seven. Because you could have Whit Merrifield and Alcides Escobar hit eight, nine. And that's not even like that bad of a turnaround when you're getting back to the top of the lineup with Kane. If you decide to squeeze a couple guys up top there, or you put Whitman Fairfield second because he doesn't burn it. And then you're probably deep one through eight. You're not burned till the nine spot. Uh, I hope they consider something different. If I had to bet right now until I see anything else, uh, Ned Yost has proven a long time that he's willing to go Escobar in the leadoff spot. <laughs> no, I think you're preaching to the choir. I've been uh, Lorenzo Kane in the leadoff is something I've, I've been wanting to see for a while. I mean, he brings... Speed, he brings on-base ability, he brings gap, good gap power, uh, and it's nice to get that great, you know, really good offensive player uh, to get the game started. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know why his name doesn't come up more. Uh, Alex Gordon, I think, would be great as well. Really, anyone but Escobar, <laughs> I think, would be a yeah. <laughs> or Perez, right? I don't think I want Salvador Perez leading off. Yeah, I, maybe. Yeah, maybe not Salvi, but uh, so I can, I can let that one go. But right. almost anyone else, I feel like, would almost be better fit for it. Yeah, but uh, you know, Ned works in mysterious ways, and I guess he has the ring to, to back him up. But uh, yeah, certainly, I would like to see them at least shake it up. I mean, if nothing more, just because you know the, what they did last year, and they've even admitted you know their formula last year didn't quite work, so maybe they need to shake things up. Uh, we'll kind of end on looking forward to the season. I know it's early, it's spring training, but Dakota has already come out with their projections. Uh, the Vegas sports books have come out with their projections. Most of them have the Royals as, you know, Dakota came out with 71 wins. Uh, a lot of the Vegas sports books are saying 74 to 80 wins. You look at this team right now, do they, do they look like a contender? I know the Indians look really solid. They're defending champs. Is this a team that come July is going to be able to add another piece and go for it, or are they going to be looking to sell come July? I would think they're more in line with a team that's going to be able to go for it. Just the 80, the like 74 to 80 numbers seems kind of odd because they won 81 games last year. And I know they're worse in areas, right? Like defensively, because you've got Solaire in right field, maybe they take a step back, but it's still the same gold glover and left high quality guy in center. 
Uh, High-quality guy. It's short. You've gotten better at third base because Moustakas is a better third baseman than Cuthbert. Or, and so you're still good at second. You've still got a gold glover behind the plate and a gold glover at first. So defensively, you don't take a step back. Starting rotation-wise, it's deeper. They got the four and five spots last year were a black hole of production. Mm. I mean, Edinson Volquez had a five and a half earned run average. The fifth spot was even worse than that. And I know Dylan G, you look at his ERA, you're like, oh, four and a half. I mean, I don't know. He wasn't. But that was as a starter, he had a five, seven, five or something. I mean, he was right in that range. It was well above five. The four and five spots were a disaster. And this year you get to roll out Vargas, who has been an incredibly consistent major league player. I know he's coming off the surgery but incredibly consistent. You back that up with Nate Carnes, who I think has the upside of a three-starter. Doesn't mean he'll get there, but he's got the upside of a three-starter. He gets to work with a good pitching coach and behind a good defense. Uh, I think the starting rotation is clearly better, in my mind. Because even based on, you know, I've said Hamill was always, their, their intention to sign Hamill was a statistical replacement for your Donovan Ventura. But actually, he's been a better than statistical replacement for Ventura based on what he did last year. So just as long as Duffy and Kennedy are what they were last year, the rotation is... Better, and clearly better. And the lineup is way deeper. There were times last year with the injuries. You remember what they were running like? One, two, three, four. I mean, by six, it, it was a pretty sad state of affairs. I mean, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine, specifically for a long stretch for the Royals, was where runs went to die for a while. And so I told you right now, I think the lineup could be eight deep, like laid out the right way. It could be a tough out. And they've got six guys that have the potential to hit 20 home runs. Alex Gordon, Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis, Brandon Moss, Jorge Soler, Salvador Perez. All those guys could hit 20 home runs. It's a better lineup. It's a similar defense. It's a better starting rotation. The bullpen is the absolute linchpin in this whole thing that we just don't know. Is Soria better? Strom only has 22 big league innings. Can he be counted on? All of these other names they're throwing at it, can they fill the need or the role of some of those other guys? But for that to only be the linchpin in this thing, bullpens, really, when even a bad bullpen, the Tigers had a bad bullpen, and it only cost them four or five games. So for them to be an 81-win team, and I think they're better in three areas and worse than one, I think 74 to 80 is awfully low. I think closer to the 85, 86, 87 range is more realistic for the Royals with, with a pretty good upside. I think it's more likely in July that they're contending than looking to sell. Well, that's what I love about this time of year is we can all be uh... – really optimistic and everyone's in first place right now and yeah we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed and make sure that they're healthy this year but I, I hope you're right I think this has a chance to be at least a decent team and then we'll see you know maybe what what kind of mid-season deals they can make to to put them over the edge if they need another another reliever or, or an arm or something like that but uh Cody Tapp thanks so much for joining us and we'll listen to you of course on 810 and we can follow you on Twitter at, is it Cody Tapp Cody B tap. I had to put the B in there. <laughs> right. That Cody tap wouldn't come off his handle. That kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. We'll have to have you on again sometime. No problem. Thanks, Max. Right, thanks. <laughs>